mom uh, was and is a, a great cook, in my opinion, and I had many favorites that she would prepare growing up. I think of chicken and dumplings. I think of her country fried steak, among others. But really, the one thing that she made that I didn't care for was her spaghetti. And I just grew up just not really liking spaghetti and um, just really wouldn't didn't, wasn't a big fan of her spaghetti. But on spaghetti night at our, at our house, she wouldn't make me an alternative dinner or anything like that. And I was either going to eat the spaghetti or go hungry. So I gradually grew to, to like it and, and enjoyed it and ate it. And then it is the only thing that I learned uh, of my mom's that, that I can make. And we actually had it. Lacey prepared my mom's recipe of spaghetti this, this weekend. So it became um, and has, has become like my favorite thing that my mom makes. And uh, so I think of my mom when I eat spaghetti, but maybe God's word uh, could be like that for, for us in some way. So we have maybe certain favorite passages, maybe certain passages that we like and then we don't like others. Maybe there's some that we think, well, this is easy. This makes sense. And then others that, well, this is difficult. This is confusing. Um, we may want to read and hear teaching on, I can do all things through Christ strengthens me, and for God so loved the world, and I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, things like that. But we come to one of the more difficult texts this morning. Uh, maybe it's familiar, and maybe not a favorite, when we hear God's teaching on, if someone slaps you across the face, turn the other cheek, and pray for your enemy. So that's where we're going this morning, and if you have been with us, we've been tracking through the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the, the previous year, and then pick back up this, this new year, but we are advancing forward, kind of in anticipation of Easter, and Jonathan and I, we were considering just what we feel are maybe some of the peaks of the Sermon on the Mount, and so we're going to hit some of the highlights of our master's teaching, and we can summarize, I feel like, his flow of thought as we advance forward. So remembering where we've been with the Beatitudes, coming out of that, the beginning of this teaching, this Sermon on the Mount. So the question that can guide is, do you want to be happy? Which everybody, most sane people would say yes. And Jesus is teaching his people what it makes or what makes for happiness. In the Beatitudes, we saw that. And they should be taken, the teaching we've seen from Jesus be taken at one and the same time as an order and an offer for repentance and how we, we don't measure up, how we don't live out some of the teachings of Christ. But then also this sketch or sketches of Jesus's own character for us to, to understand and see of him and through him. And then also as a promise, seeing these things as a promise of his transforming work in his followers, what he's going to do only through his grace, only through the power of Christ, can we reflect him, reflect his own character in our actions with, yes, with God the Father and with one another. So the king declares, as Jonathan preached last week, the king declares that we, the people of God, will be the salt of the earth. In a city on a hill, Jonathan making the point that our purpose determining uh, or determines our posture, we're just to display hospitable holiness. So Jesus, he's going to go on to reveal that in him, 
and in his teaching, every iota and dot of the law is being brought to its intended meaning. In fact, Christ followers, the people of the kingdom, they will be marked by a righteousness that exceeds the highest standard because he reigns and rules at the very core of our being. So we're not measured by, we don't earn a right status by only external acts and law keeping. But Christ now enters into giving illustrations. And he's giving these illustrations that are going to point to this deeper uh, reading of the requirements of living in his kingdom. He's going to give these illustrations for us, lay out some teachings that allow us to understand in a deeper way the ethical commandments about anger, about lust, about divorce, about the taking of oaths or swearing of an oath, retaliation, and enemies. So you can read um, some of those teachings, but we're going to pick up and I will be able to summarize and see the thrust of Jesus' teaching as we get into, again, the ethical standards, the life that he calls us to as those who have him reigning, ruling, in our hearts, at the very core of who we are. So Matthew 5, verse 38 is where we're starting out. It's been read already this morning, so let's pick up uh, with it in verse 38, but let's pray one more time. Pray with me. God, we want obedience to your ways. We want to find our most significant all of our joy and satisfaction in you and living according to your way, so would you help us? Lord, could, could even now the, the preaching of your word, the hearing of the preaching of your word be a way that you use to bring us into faithfulness and obedience and finding joy and contentment in you? Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. So as we line up, Again, a difficult passage that we're approaching this morning, if there's a roadmap we could say, we're going to see how we are delivered, delivered from the corruption of the world, a corruption in how the law is interpreted. Because that's the refrain we see. He says, have you not heard it said? He's going to be reviewing what they know, what the people, his hearers scattered on that Galilean um, countryside or hillside. He's explaining to them, this is what you have heard. This is what you've known to be the law. So we're going to see how Jesus, in his grace and in his omnicompetence, how he's showing us, he's not concealing from us, this is the way that you interact with the law. This is the way you can apply the law. I'm revealing the intended meaning, and now you're going to know. You're going to know how to relate to God and relate to one another and relate to the world around you. Praise God that he reveals that to us. So we're going to press into seeing how we're delivered from the corruption of the world and then see how we deliver, because we're delivered from the corruption of the world, we deliver, deliver God's love, God's truth to everyone without discrimination. And that's the purpose of this, that he brings us into conformity with him so we represent him to others. So I came to see there's another key understanding of this sermon. Understanding this text is the unchangeable nature of our great God. So if that could be uh, a, an idea, if that could be a commitment that we carry through this time and carry through as we're seeing God's teaching is just seeing the immutability, the unchangeable nature of God, that 
his love and his mercy, they're on display throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And so coming away appreciating his amazing law, we're going to have to look at and approach the law as it's been stated. Again, how he's told us we will interact with God and man. But then understanding his amazing love through the law so that we can keep in mind and a key takeaway could be in fact that, that this, is, this is an amazing God that reveals these things to us, these deep truths, these amazing and beautiful realities. And we could adore him more, adore him more no matter what. He establishes, maintains order in our lives, maintains some semblance of peace in our world. Rational reality is his gift of, of common grace that everyone can experience on some level, that, that's amazing. And that's our God, the immutable, unchangeable God that we know and we get to serve. Now, a further key to understanding the sermon, verse 20 in Matthew 5, you can see, for I tell you, it kind of all hinges on this. This is a culminating part of the sermon when Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So just understanding part of the audience, part of Jesus's original hearers, these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day. So for us to understand the intended meaning and then the application of this timeless truth for us, we have to understand who he's addressing and what he's addressing originally. So thinking of the image of God being image bearers in us, that gives us a sense of justice. So we have innately, in many ways, a sense of what's right, what's wrong, fairness, right treatment. But because of sin, because of sin, we know the whole image-bearing uh, nature that everyone has is, can be twisted, can be distorted. So what is just, what is fair, again, it becomes perverted. It can be backwards because of sin. So now this spirit, this innate knowledge of what is right becomes a spirit of revenge. It can be a, a spirit of intense desire for retaliation, for vengeance. So Jesus is speaking directly about this perverted justice that was lived and taught by the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. So the leaders, they thought that they could enter the kingdom of God based on their own self-righteousness, following the law, following external rituals that excused them and excluded their own unrepentant, unforgiven sin. So Jesus is teaching, and he, he gave them no excuse. He wanted to show them their hypocrisy. He wanted to reveal their need as wicked sinners. So in this way, Jesus is perfectly loving them by showing them their need for forgiveness. They're sinners in need of a Savior, and no one, no one comes to the Father without at some point realizing their need for a Savior because they are a sinner. We are sinners apart from Christ. So they must know that. We must know that. Everyone has to come to the point of knowing their need for a Savior. So we can read back through the sermon to see how he revealed that contrary to what they believed, they were guilty. Contrary to what they thought, he said, no, you're actually guilty. You're guilty of murder. You're guilty of adultery. You are liars. And now he reveals that contrary to what they thought, they were filled with vengeful, cruel, hateful spirits, and they will not enter the kingdom of God. This is Jesus perfectly teaching. This is Jesus 
perfectly loving the religious leaders of his day. And one prominent pastor, he says this, Jesus is reiterating God's standard to them by saying, you fall short. So we start there, understanding we fall short of the standard, but he's giving us the intended meaning of the law. In verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Jesus is going to illustrate the reality of the intended meaning of the law for us. So he's saying the normative view, like the normal regular view of justice is that you get what you deserve. You get what you give. He's saying that is the normal view of the law, normal view of justice. But he's saying don't seek revenge. He's saying, in fact, expect to be opposed. Don't be surprised when you are wrong. Now, we do want to go back and see this is, in fact, what the law says. Exodus 21, 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Deuteronomy 19, the rest shall hear and, and, and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Deuteronomy, the second law, it's restated again. And it's stated again in Leviticus. So here's the wrong way. Here's the wrong way to interpret this and to see God as different in the Old Testament. Remember, he's immutable. He's unchangeable. It's the same God. So some would say wrongly that, well, look, that's the merciless God in the Old Testament. He's demanding individual vigilante justice. Not at all. They're saying, they could say wrongly that he says, give back anything you get in punishment. So that's the heart of man. That's the distorted, the curse of sin, the distorted view of justice. We must remember God's not like that. Praise God, that's not his heart. So starting in Exodus 20, You have the law that's basically codified, kind of systematized, and the 20th chapter of Exodus reveals the moral law. That's between man and God, a woman and God, the moral law. But then starting in Exodus 21, you have the civil law, which this is a part of, the eye for eye. So the moral law is taking care of between a man and God, but the civil law, the civil law, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is taking care within the framework of appointed authorities, judges, magistrates. That's the application. So the law law of retaliation from God, it was a way to provide justice. It was a way to fight evil within the community. So his intention was to prohibit excessive or too weak of punishment. This is a merciful God. This is a merciful merciful law for the people. So prohibiting excessive or too weak a punishment, it's only eye for eye. It's not, you harmed my eye, you're dead. It's not too weak where you, you harmed my eye, well, I'll just, I'll just say don't do that. No, there is justice here. The principle is playing out for the people's good. So his intention was, again, to prevent or, or to establish fair consequences. And then to allow those fair consequences to be a deterrent of future wrongdoing. It was carried out by civil authority, which he appointed. So preventing what he's doing in the law, 
the, originally is preventing vigilante justice, personal vengeance. And then he's also establishing order. So we know even in our day, I think there's multiple movies about the, the vigilante or the seeking of revenge. And typically that character is the hero, is the hero. Just understand that was never the intention of the law. And that, that cannot be rightly interpreted as eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Romans 12, 19, Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So commentators on the book of Romans, they've pointed out there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of similarities between Romans 12 and the Sermon on the Mount. And this makes sense for us, again, just understanding the nature of God's word. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write the letter to the Roman church. And since the Spirit and the Son are both fully God, the word of God through Paul is ultimately the word of the Son of God himself. There's no contradiction. It is the immutable character of God, and it is all God's word. And we see Romans 13.4 saying that officials, officials trusted with administering the law, those, those civil authorities, they're the ones that should punish evildoers. But this law of retaliation, it can, and it does clearly, this is the teaching, it can have this private effect. The misinterpretation, this misunderstanding, sin trying to be applied to understanding and applying the truth of God's word, the nature and character of our king can have this private effect that does promote vindictiveness, that does promote um, retaliation, whereas a, a, a victim of wrongdoing maybe dreams of making the wrongdoer suffer as they have. This is the effect it has because of sin. So it's in this context, in this reality that Jesus speaks in and says, do not resist the one who is evil. So how does that land with you? I want to resist that teaching. I want to resist that. That doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound right. It doesn't, doesn't feel right. So it confronts many of my own inclinations and maybe the human impulse that's common. So we see it on the playground or in the nursery. Typically, hey, you steal my toy. I'm taking it back. You hit me. I'm going to hit you. You bite me. I bite you. We see it play out. Sharing and all these things, not sharing. So I remember the rule for my brother and I, for my dad in our house was, hey, if anybody punches you first and you don't fight back, fight back, and I hear about it, my dad would say, then you're going to be in trouble. Don't, that, that's, I'm not saying that's right. So, but that was my dad's rule. So the response, right, is to defend yourself. Defend yourself. You can't just roll over or everyone may just walk all over you. So it's key, as always, to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we see that do not resist is not an absolute principle. The do not resist is not an absolute principle. Matthew 4, Jesus resisted Satan, the temptation that came from Satan. James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 9, James and Peter command Christians to resist the devil. Acts 13 the magician, uh, Paul resists Elymas, the magician. He says, you're the son of the devil for opposing them and through the power of the Lord made him blind. That was Paul. 
in Acts 13. Galatians 2.11, Peter's acting differently around Jews or the circumcision party, and Paul opposed, opposes Peter to his face. So what is this principle? So in the Old Testament, also God directs the, the leaders of Israel to resist invading nations. So the principles we see for followers of the King Jesus is to resist uh, temptation, yes, and we offer resistance to the devil. And then legal entities or the civil authorities, they are to administer the, the law that resists invaders. That is in place. But furthermore, everyone should provide resistance to those who seem to harm the weak, who seek to harm the weak. I mean, we are to provide resistance there. We do that standing with our partners, our community partners like the PRC, the weakest among us, the babies in the womb. We stand for them. But Jesus teaches this principle for his disciples to not resist when being harmed personally. He gives three illustrations. Let's look, let's track through these illustrations he gives us. So the illustration he says in verse 30, and excuse me, verse 39, do not resist the evil one, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So common to this time, a, a slap from right hand to right cheek would be a backhanded slap. So the intention not necessarily to do a lot of physical harm, but it would just be an insult. Like I want to dishonor you. So this backhand slap. So Jesus says to not retaliate against someone who makes a personal attack against your reputation. That would be the form that it would take this backhand slap. He's saying don't retaliate against someone who wants to attack maybe your reputation, maybe your honor personally. So what does this look like? What does this look like if someone attacks how you're known or how you're seen by people in general and somebody wants to mess that up for us? Well, Jesus, he doesn't offer any rationale uh, for this command. He doesn't even say that the striker will feel shame or repent. He simply says this is the way in his kingdom to not retaliate. And he goes on, verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he says, trust, live generously. So there was uh, the rule or in the law, they could be sued for their inner garment, the tunic. And a disciple would, would also, he's saying, also give up your outer garment as well. So the law, again, permitted seizure of this inner garment, but not the outer cloak, which would have been heavier, would have been like more essential wear. And in fact, Jesus is kind of exaggerating here because it would have been um, unsafe and it would have been inappropriate or indecent to give up all your clothing. So his point is, is that disciples do not spend their energy defending themselves. It's better to suffer fraud and let God handle our defense. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Then the Roman soldiers, they had the power to require the, the Jewish people who they were oppressing, that required to have them help them carry their equipment up to a thousand paces, which would have been roughly a mile. So they could compel the Jewish people to assist them. So this was, was a harsh situation, to say the least, that they could command and demand this. But Jesus orders his followers respond to this harsh treatment 
And this thing that would be unfair, he says, respond to it with kindness. And in fact, carry the load even further. And this last command shifts from handling mistreatment to showing kindness. So he says, we are commanded to live generously without limit. So we're, we're, we're to give uh, to those who are in need. Now, obviously, there's the spirit that allows us to discern, will this giving, in fact, allow or, or cause us to not be able to take care of our own families? We're not supposed to do that. Would this type of giving or living generously cause uh, someone to be enabled or, or to go further into sin? Or, or would it be that they would have some sort of fostering, some sort of dependence in a way that's unhelpful and, and actually unkind? So the Spirit has to guide us in that. And the Spirit to allow us to, to discern what is living generously looking like. But if you see... All the ways and all the illustrations in which God says is to apply his love and apply his ways, we see that we are delivered. It is freedom. We're delivered from the corruption of the world that says, get revenge, that says, guard your reputation, spend so much energy in something that is out of our control. He's saying, you're delivered from that. We're delivered from being spiteful delivered from holding grudges, delivered from seeking to be considered every, in every way above others. Like we're delivered from that. We're delivered from a corrupt and twisted view of justice and individual rights. So the desire and phenomenon that maybe we see in our contemporary culture, it's nothing new. The desire for more rights that are out of bounds, a loosening of the law and its demands and its consequences. This is perverted and corrupt, and God's people are called out of this. We are delivered from this. So you may say, with all these things, contemporary application, how are we protected? How are we protected in, in personally in our own lives? This sounds dangerous. We have to remember the intention of the law, understanding the law that is still in place given by God, the immutable God, the merciful one. 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1 verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So more rights, more freedom, more freedom to do things that are evil and harmful for individuals and society in the name of individual rights. There's less and less, or in some cases, absolutely no punishment for wrongdoing. There's no punishment for breaking long-established laws that have allowed for some sort of semblance of a sane society. That's what we see, and it's nothing new. So in a fight for rights, we prevent God's established law that's intended to preserve righteous standards. Whenever we want more rights in society, the law gets wrecked. If men get their way, what they want is unlawful because men are evil. 
lost. And so the law is given, how we protected, the law is given to stop lawlessness. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, God gave the law to protect righteous men from ungodly evil men. And at no point in time are we to confuse the law. This is freedom for us. This is freedom for us to trust the system that God has established. And it's not up to us as individuals to achieve our own perception of fair treatment. This passage does not teach that laws can be broken, that personal physical harm can be inflicted on Christians with no repercussions. It does not teach that non-resistance or pacifism or resistance to just war is, it does not abolish capital punishment. It does not teach that. This is all a confusion of biblical truth. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, reflected on this, and he reflected on those who in his day read it in a pacifist way, like how you can't resist anything. He said, this is what the individual Christian is called to, but it is not even what the individual Christian is called to with reference to others. Luther said, the call to love my neighbor may mean that I have to intervene to protect my neighbor. I can turn my cheek, but I don't have the right to turn my neighbor's cheek. I may give away my tunic, but I don't have a right to give away my neighbor's tunic. And therefore, the call to love the neighbor means that I have to be willing in a variety of ways to protect the neighbor. So Luther, he went on to say, Calvin and all all the other reformed leaders, they would have said the same. One of the ways in which we love our neighbor and look for the protection of our neighbor is through the institution of the civil government. God has instituted civil government to protect the weak against the strong, to protect the good against the wicked. So what do we do with that? Well, first of all, think of we can only operate from where we are right now. We can only operate from the present situation. We don't know what the future holds. But is there anyone, is there anyone in our lives that we need to forgive? Is there anyone uh, that we can serve? Because even if they've wronged us in the past, we can let legal recourse play out. That, That can happen. But don't hold a grudge. Don't demand an apology or some sort of compensation for the cost of your reputation or record by an unbeliever. Don't live with that. Get out from under that. And he goes on to give us the way to fight vindictiveness. The way to, again, experience that deliverance from the corrupt view of the law and the corrupt view of the world on justice. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So a common way of life and thinking is to love your friends, but it is also not common. Uh, it It is also common to hate your enemies. So these enemies are like those who are suing or or personally attacking your reputation. These enemies are those who have a problem with, with, with us and maybe intend to harm us. But we don't see Jesus categorizing all those who are outside of the people of God as enemies. He first wants to correct a misquoting. He's wanting to correct a misquoting or at least a misinterpretation of the law. The law never says to hate your enemy. It never says that. 
It only says, love our neighbor, Leviticus 19.18. So love of enemies, though, is not common. It was not the common way of thinking. So they would say, um, love your friends or love your neighbor. So therefore, it just is understood you hate those who oppose you. You hate your enemies. But this command to love and pray for enemies is new. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Verse 46, do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So praise God that he doesn't just love those who love him back. There is common grace. He's giving rain and sun on everyone indiscriminately. So if we only show care and attention to those who reciprocate, what sets us apart from unbelievers? So we see the Father's love is perfect. The Father's love is perfect. It's complete in both the Old Testament and New Testament. The perfect love of the Father is uh, displayed as his rain pours and sun, the sun shines down indiscriminately on humanity, both good and evil. And he gives us the power. And he gives us the command to deliver that same love to everyone so that you may be sons and daughters. It doesn't mean that this love earns our way into God's family. It just shows that and demonstrates that we are children of God, that sons resemble their father. It demonstrates that we are children of God. One commentator says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. To love as God's love, uh, to love as God loves is moral perfection. So since we've been delivered from a corrupt view of justice, we're protected by God's established authorities, we deliver God's love to everyone. Not just those who love us and treat us well. God provides for even those who deny him. He does that. So what do we do? We pray. We pray by name. We follow this command of Christ. Pray by name. And specifically for those who might be against you, us, might be against God. We pray for them. D.A. Carson writes, the more love, the more prayer. The more prayer, the more love. It is a reciprocating effect in our life. This is the command. If we apply it, we might not pray from a, a feeling of love, but that will breed in us and grow in us a love for that person that we're praying for. And it works both ways. And then is it not beautiful to see the picture of Jesus in this teaching? The picture of Jesus, when evil men assaulted him, when they accused him falsely, he was silent. Jesus remained silent. When insulted and beaten, he did not retaliate. They spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him. And lastly, Jesus prayed for his enemies from the cross, even as they crucified and mocked him. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's his prayer from the cross. So as I love mom's spaghetti now, the reality of Jesus living out this difficult teaching is perfect, beautiful, 
good to us and good for us. It may not be our favorite thing. It may be complex. It may be hard. But is it not beautiful? And it is a picture of what Jesus did to attain for us peace with God through his death. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus was the intended and ultimate expression of this reality. So we have to balance. We have to balance maintaining the law of God in a depraved society with displaying a true response of forgiveness, love, not seeking revenge. So Jesus showed the religious leaders of his day that they were not righteous because they took the law eye for eye and turned it into justification for hate in their heart. So what do we do? There's a prominent pastor, he says, how do you find this kind of balance where you can uphold the law of God and still in your heart be free to forgive? How do you do that? He writes this, very simple. The only person who is non-defensive, non-protective, non-vengeful, never bears a grudge, has no spite in his heart, is a person who has died to self. What is there to defend? What is there to defend if I die to self? What is to defend? If I'm going to fight for my rights, then I prove the point that myself, that self is on the throne. Self is ruling. So Jesus had died to self in the sense that he had abandoned himself to the Father's will. And so if he died, he died. So you see, selfishness is defensive. It's protective. It's vengeful. It's spiteful. It's reactionary. So if, we're have, if we are to have the spirit that Jesus asked for, we have to die to ourselves. We are delivered from selfishness by the grace and power of Christ. And we get to deliver God's merciful love to even our enemies. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for helping us know your ways, know of your mercy, which is the establishment of your law, the giving of civil authorities that provide protection, that provide a measure of peace in society. Thank you for that. But Lord, I pray that us as individual Christ followers, if we're claiming you, May we know how to not be vengeful and to not hold grudges and to truly pray for those that wrong us. All for your glory, all so that people can see not us, but see Jesus. And I pray that in his name.